everybody. I'm the Woodmother, and this is Woodmother's Workshop, a low-budget, low-effort, low-quality practice podcast that I'm using to build my writing and audio production skills and document my research for a story I'm writing called Gate City Blues. I have quite a lot to say this week, so let's jump right into it. Last week, I tried using a lav mic for the first time, and it worked pretty well, but because I clipped it to my shirt collar, all my swallowing noises were really loud, and I had to edit those out. So this time I've clipped it a little bit lower down and hopefully that should help. I'm still waiting to hear back from the I Need Diverse Games contest for podcasters of color, but hopefully by March 21st, I'll find out whether or not I was selected to receive a Blue Yeti microphone. I am really looking forward to improving my setup in the coming weeks. Now, on to my research. This week, I've been reading the book Prohibition in Atlanta, Temperance, Tiger Kings, and White Lightning by Mary O'Boyle and Ron Smith. I'm only halfway through it so far, but it's already given me a lot of additional context to the research I've previously done on the history of vaudeville and public entertainment in Atlanta. Atlanta's relationship with alcohol and the theater have been long intertwined due to the powerful influence that the church has had on shaping the perceived morality of the city. In the earliest days of the city of Atlanta, back in the 1840s, when it was still little more than a frontier town at the end of a railroad, the two major political factions were the Free and Rowdy Party, which is a super awesome name. They supported the saloons and houses of ill repute, and the Moral Party, which opposed them. In episode two of this podcast, Radio Killed the Vaudeville Star, I talked about how variety shows and theater in general were seen by the church as inherently sinful and worldly due to their historical association with vices like gambling and drinking and such. As late as 1904, writers such as J.M. Judy in Questionable Amusements and Worthy Substitutes gave such condemnations as, With drunkenness, gambling and dancing, theater-going dates from the beginning of history, and with these it is not only questionable in morals, but it is positively bad. There you find the man who has lost all love for his home, the careless, the profane, the spendthrift, the drunkard, and the lowest prostitute of the street. So, not a lot of very nice things. Even though vaudeville helped clean up theater's public image around the turn of the century and a little bit prior, and Atlanta gained its fair share of legitimate theaters, many of which banned alcohol altogether, The less respectable saloons represented the ways in which public performance and alcohol consumption were still intrinsically linked. Saloons also epitomized the growing gender disparity within public life. Prohibition in Atlanta tells us, In contrast to many taverns in history, the Victorian-era saloon did not generally welcome women. The sexes increasingly occupied different spaces, in part due to industrialization. The spaces were associated with gender roles. Men went to work in segregated factories and women stayed home in the domestic sphere. Drinking in public was labeled a male activity since it occurred outside the home. From earlier social experiences in frontier life, women's public drinking became associated with sexual depravity. The Victorian mentality held any alcohol consumption by women suspect. Drinking was treated as a disease that directly affected children's lives and the family structure. The respectable women who could afford it drank in private at home. Those who wanted to drink but did not have family support often became users of patent medicines. We'll talk a little bit more about those later. 
Because public drinking, and drinking in general, was so heavily gendered, it is no surprise that the early temperance movement was championed by women. Before reading this book, whenever I thought about the origins of the prohibition movement, I mostly imagined stuffy, upper-middle-class, white church ladies who wanted to impose their morality on the rest of the country. And that's not entirely incorrect, but this book helped me see it from a different angle. Temperance greatly appealed to women who lived with men who abused alcohol. Women's right to hold property, maintain family finances, and legally gain divorces were severely reduced and in many cases impossible during this time. Temperance via moral suasion, which is just like another term for persuasion, I guess, was an avenue for increasing a woman's and her family's chances of financial and emotional stability. So the Women's Christian Temperance Union was founded in 1874, with the goal of organizing women to lobby their local governments for laws that would lead to a reduction in male drunkenness, which was a direct threat to their safety. The WCTU quickly became the largest and most influential women's organization in the country's history. And in 1880, one of its leaders, Frances Willard, came to Atlanta to set up a local chapter. Frances Willard was convinced that the key to a reunited country in the aftermath of the Civil War lay within Southern women. She campaigned alongside them, encouraging women as protectors of the home and instruments for reestablishing the link between North and South. Interestingly, she also set up another Atlanta chapter just for black women. Frances Willard argued that women, being the morally superior sex, which was the common belief of the time, needed to act as citizen mothers. In this aspect, they were working within their role as protectors of their homes and could exercise power to cure society's ills. Think of your work, she said, as merely enlarged housekeeping. Initially, the WCTU wasn't motivated to ban alcohol entirely, but supported tactics such as increasing the price of liquor licenses or enacting something called local option, which was a way to bring about prohibition gradually by giving individual counties the opportunity to vote on whether they would be wet, supporting alcohol, or dry, banning it. The prohibition would not be permanent, however, as the ruling could be overturned in the next election, and that's exactly what happened in Atlanta in the 1880s. In 1885, Fulton County, which is home to Atlanta, held its first vote on local option. Once again, we see this moral party versus free and rowdy party dichotomy represented in the dries and the wets. The Dry Party, aided by the WCTU, emphasized the moral angle to their position and even featured an illustration of a drunkard about to walk off a cliff into hell on the back of their ballot. The Wet Party, which is a hilarious name, focused on the damage to local businesses and the loss of tax revenue if the county were to ban the retail sale, wholesale, and manufacture of alcohol, and they made the Dry Party out to be a bunch of unreasonable religious fundamentalists. The 1885 pamphlet, An Appeal to the Voters of Atlanta, declared that the Drys even oppose baseball, theaters, card playing, dancing, and whatnot. And once again, we see alcohol and theater and other forms of public entertainment linked in the mind of the church. It was a tight race, and each side considered the black community of Atlanta to make up the swing vote. According to Chapter 4 of Prohibition in Atlanta, Prohibition was an important issue among African-American ministers, civic leaders, 
political leaders, and noted educators, black ministers were united on the issue. Prohibition was the way of Christianity. The book, To Build Our Lives Together, Community Formation in Atlanta Between 1875 and 1906, which is on my Amazon wish list, by the way, tells us, African-American leaders in the Prohibition camp argued that by supporting the cause, they were aligning themselves with the best people in Atlanta and demonstrating their own high moral standards. The black community was also promised improved race relations through a higher level of sobriety across races. This sentiment is similar in a lot of ways to W.E.B. Du Bois's, yes, that's how his name was pronounced, ideology of racial uplift that relied on a talented tenth of African Americans serving as moral and intellectual examples to the rest of their community. Many black folks of the time genuinely believed that if they could prove to the white establishment that they were capable of being upstanding, respectable middle-class citizens, the whole race would be uplifted in the eyes of the whites. Unfortunately, that was not the case, and struggles over the best path to racial uplift were prevalent several decades later during the Harlem Renaissance. But surprisingly, back in 1885, the Dries won the day, but with a very narrow margin. Sources differ as to whether they won by 219 or 229 votes, but either way, it was close, and Atlanta was to be a dry city. In fact, at the time, it was the largest city to ever go dry by popular vote. But liquor licenses didn't expire until 1886, so the ruling didn't go into effect right away. There were a lot of shenanigans over the next few months as folks tried to stock up on alcohol to last them through the dry year until they could vote again in 1887. It was a totally different vibe to when national prohibition was enacted via the 18th Amendment in 1920. Then the nationwide prohibition was seen to be more or less indefinite and spanned the whole country. Whereas in Atlanta in 1885, citizens knew it might only last a few years, and they also had the option of purchasing mail-order alcohol from nearby cities that arrived daily on the Jug Train. The Wets called the trains The Juggler, and the Drys named it The Juggernaut. Both of those are such good names. Atlanta even developed cost-effective social clubs around the Jug Train where people pooled their money together, made a large order, and shared the shipment at gatherings. And because the purchase and sale happened outside of the county, this was technically legal. Also, it's important to note that the prohibition was only on whiskey and other hard liquor. Beer and wine were still allowed to a limited degree, but the law was trying to decrease the saloon-type environment in which men could get drunk in public by only allowing those types of beverage alcohol to be purchased in bulk by wholesalers to be consumed in private. This led to some hilarious loopholes, such as one instance in July 1886 in which the wholesale liquor license of M.J. Mabry was transferred to number 23 Decatur Street, a shop adjoining the Kimball House, a former saloon that had converted into a wine room. Therein, quart-sized pitchers of beer, whiskey, and cocktails were being sold wholesale. The patrons would take their purchases out a back door and walk into the Kimball House wine room. The wine room did not sell anything but domestic wine. However, it provided glassware to share anything that someone had perhaps bought elsewhere. This dry year saw the first of Atlanta's blind tigers, which was a term for what we might now call speakeasies or bootleggers. 
A blind tiger could be a location where illegal alcohol was sold, a person who sold illegal alcohol, or even the illegal alcohol itself, such as in the case of blind tiger whiskey. The term has a few different possible origins, but my favorite theory has to do with the world of sideshows and dime museums. A quasi-legal bar could be run by selling tickets to see an animal oddity and giving away free drinks. Evidently, the first animal oddity was a blind tiger. I don't know how true that is, but it sure sounds fun, and the dime museum aspect connects it back to vaudeville history. But in 1887, it was time to vote again, and this time the wets were better prepared in their attacks on the dry party. They declared that the prohibitionists looked at the working class as sots, paupers, and beggars. The wets went on to point out that the upper and middle class people claiming to be dry could easily deny a luxury to the working class since the better off had access to jug train orders and private clubs. Where was the personal liberty for the working class? This struck a chord with Atlanta's labor class of all races. The whole concept of prohibition, they maintained, smacked of classism. Now, an interesting intersection of alcohol and public entertainment came in the form of patent medicine salesmen, who combined entertaining street performances with remedies that were, more often than not, thinly-veiled legal loopholes to purchase alcohol, often laced with much stronger drugs. After the Civil War, Atlanta was considered the national capital of patent medicine, packing in more quacks per head than any other U.S. city. In fact, arguably the most famous patent medicine in the world, Coca-Cola, got its start in Atlanta in 1886 during this dry year. Now, in November 1887, according to Prohibition in Atlanta, a hugely popular traveling patent medicine salesman named Yellowstone Kit became important in the local option campaign. Kit was a black gentleman of small stature who projected a booming and charismatic voice. People of all races would stop to hear him speak. He was, from all appearances, one of the best patent medicine salesmen in the Southeast. He was especially popular with Atlanta's African-American population. When Kit threw his support behind the wet campaign, it helped solidify the anti-prohibition vote, and the prohibition of liquor was subsequently overturned. The prohibition leaders were quick to blame Atlanta's African-American population for their loss, and from then on, Dries myopically saw blacks as drunkards and willing dupes of the labor forces. Even though the prohibitionists lost this round and the sale and consumption of all manner of alcoholic beverages was once again legal in Atlanta, the prohibitionists did not give up the fight. Rather, they expanded it to other vices that they thought threatened the moral character of the city. Once again, the theater became a target. Chapter 1 of Highbrows, Hillbillies, and Hellfire by Steve Goodson begins with the story of how, in the fall of 1894, the Women's Christian Temperance Union of Atlanta launched a campaign against lewd advertising for shows appearing at DeJive's Opera House. The lewd advertising in question was a poster for the show Black Sheep, featuring an actress in bright, full-body blue tights against a lurid red background. The WCTU, combined with their male allies in the Atlanta clergy, urged police to get involved, and they arrested the man who had been plastering the playbills all around the city. Public opinion was divided. Many people in Atlanta feared not just for the moral character of their city, but specifically that it was being corrupted by outside, northern influences. 
This led to a long, drawn-out controversy over who had the right to decide where to draw the line of what the theaters were and were not allowed to show. Goodson writes, The controversy indicates the centrality that the theater held in such debates and in Atlanta's cultural life in general. DeJive's Opera House, and later his other more magnificent theater, The Grand, contributed greatly to Atlanta's evolving sense of itself as the premier city of the New South. The stream of railroad-born theatrical troops, musicians, and opera companies that strolled across Atlanta's stages entertained the city's citizens and visitors while helping to build Atlanta's reputation as the cultural capital of the Deep South. Controversies about theatrical posters as well as the content of the shows continued for the next several decades, many of which specifically targeted the saloons and theaters of Decatur Street, such as the 81 Theater, which was white-owned but catered to a primarily black audience. Prohibition in Atlanta tells us that during the late 1800s and early 1900s, this busy and colorful Decatur Street was compared to San Francisco's Chinatown and New Orleans' Canal Street, described as a kaleidoscope of light, noise, and bustle from dawn to dawn, Decatur Street was Atlanta's international melting pot. Now, many saloons on Decatur Street actually served an integrated clientele, and this cemented their position in public opinion as hotbeds of crime. Any place where white and black patrons mingled together was surely not the kind of place that should be allowed to exist in Atlanta. Yellow journalism that emphasized the connection between Atlanta's black community with crime, drunkenness, and vice, and the corrupting influence it was having on the city's white citizens, culminated in 1906 in the most dramatic act of racial violence in Atlanta's history up to that point. This excerpt from Prohibition in Atlanta tells us, In the hotly debated Georgia governor's race of 1906, both candidates were running on platforms designed to disenfranchise minorities, specifically African Americans. In the 1885-1887 Fulton County local option vote, the electorate had solicited the black vote. But in the early 1900s, it was the opposite. Each candidate sought to suppress that vote as a means of victory. Both sides used yellow journalism, racial fears, and hysteria to support their platforms. Taking cues from race baiting in other parts of the nation, the factions focused their rhetoric on the integrated nature of Decatur Street, especially the saloons. In their quest for sensationalism, Atlanta newspapers published unverified stories of black assaults on white women to gain headlines. The volatile combination of these accusations white male drinking patterns, social frustrations, and political antagonism exploded into one of Atlanta's darkest episodes, the Atlanta race riot of 1906. On September 22nd, in the late afternoon, a mob of between 5,000 and 10,000 whites went on a violent and destructive rampage. Exactly how many people were killed and wounded during the four days of violence is uncertain. According to religious leaders in the aftermath of the riot, the city coroner issued only 10 death certificates for black victims, but estimates from other sources range from 20 to 47 African-American deaths, 150 critically injured, and countless others who fled the city. Most sources agree that only two whites were killed, one being a woman who suffered a heart attack after witnessing the mob outside her home. The next day, a famous circuit preacher and prominent figure in the temperance movement, Reverend Sam Jones, hosted a rally for the newly formed Georgia Anti-Saloon League at one of Atlanta's local theaters. 
the Atlanta Constitution quoted Reverend Jones as proclaiming, You may say that the bloodshed in Atlanta last night was inevitable, but whiskey, yes, whiskey was behind it. I want to see those disgraceful Decatur Street dives of debauchery and sin obliterated. His sermon continued by focusing on personal certainty that alcohol was involved in the assaults on white women and that the black saloons on Decatur Street needed to be closed. Jones chose not to address the violence of the white mob. This extremely myopic view of the riot was taken up by many Atlanta newspapers, political leaders, and local clergymen. Precious few acknowledged the fact that the mob was Anglo-American and did not originate from the Decatur Street dives. The city council began a campaign to close ill-reputed businesses on Decatur Street. The mayor ordered all saloons in the city closed and had each owner reapply for a license so that the city could weed out the dives from the reputable businesses. In October 1906, just one month later, the Atlanta Constitution reported that 36 Atlanta whiskey and beer saloons had been closed and the pressure was on to close more. No new racially integrated saloons were allowed. As licenses expired, existing saloons were pressured to become either colored only or white only. No chairs or tables were allowed in saloons and people who stayed beyond a few drinks could be arrested for loitering. Georgia's largest wet city, had obviously changed since the riot, and the dries back on the offensive made sure it stayed that way. One year later, still in the aftermath of the riot, an attempt at statewide prohibition of alcohol was once again made by the dry party. In July 1907, state representatives voted 139 to 39 in favor of the Hardman-Covington-Neal Prohibition Bill, and in August, Governor Hoke Smith signed it into law. It didn't come without a fight, however not just on the part of barmen and brewery owners, but in the state capitol, there was actually a fist fight between state legislators after a week-long filibuster and police had to get involved. Atlanta was dry once again, and the whole state of Georgia with it. This brought back the blind tiger speakeasies and the bootleggers, as well as jug trains shipping mail-order alcohol in from Chattanooga, Tennessee and Jacksonville, Florida. Next week, I'll talk more about the continuing statewide prohibition into the Roaring Twenties, which is the era that most of us associate with prohibition. But for now, I want to circle back to the church's moral struggle against Atlanta's theaters. In 1913, local theater managers began to open their theaters on Sundays, which was met by intense backlash by the city's clergy, who wanted to keep the Sabbath holy. It wasn't just that folks were going out and enjoying entertainment on the day that they should be in church, but the clergy objected specifically to the commercialization of the Sabbath. By this time, Atlanta's theaters were showing silent films as well as live entertainment, and so they responded to the church's critiques by only showing family-friendly and religious films on Sundays and announcing that they would open their doors to the public on Sundays but with no admission charge and with all voluntary contributions going to charity. Proponents of Sunday entertainment made the appeal to the interests of the working class, just as the Wets had in the 1887 election, claiming that because Sunday was the only day working men had off from work, keep in mind the five-day work week was not yet common practice, civic health depended on their ability to have leisure time. Linton C. Hopkins, president of the Atlanta Associated Charities, asserted, the majority of the people consider that as a matter of right, they are entitled to recreation and amusement on Sunday, and I agree with them fully. 
If they are not afforded opportunity for innocent recreation, many of them are going to seek recreation not so innocent. Healthful amusements lessen crime. Atlanta's mayor, James Woodward, reportedly said, If shows are operated in a sane, sensible, and first-class manner, and if the pictures are clean and wholesome, I don't see why anyone should object. We are no longer living in a crossroads village, but in a modern, cosmopolitan city. But not everybody shared his views. In April of 1913, a meeting was held between the Evangelical Ministers Association and representatives from the local theaters. The theater owners argued that in other cities, such as New York, New Orleans, and Jacksonville, they were favorable to Sunday showings. At this point, one minister supposedly jumped out of his seat and exclaimed, We don't want a more cosmopolitan city of Atlanta. We don't want Atlanta to be a city like New York. She has grown to what she is without a cosmopolitan Sunday, and she can continue to grow without it. It is an asset. He added in disgust, Why, in New York City, my wife could not walk alone on a block on Broadway after dark without being insulted. But half a dozen voices allegedly responded, She couldn't do it on the streets of Atlanta either. Mm, Makes me wonder what she looked like. Steve Goodson writes, The movie debate therefore highlights the central questions confronting the New South. What changes should be accepted? What traditions should be sustained? What values should be discarded? And crucially, who was to make these decisions? Ultimately, the ministers were successful in getting the theaters to close on Sunday, a practice which lasted into the Great Depression. And that Sunday showdown of 1913 paved the way for the municipal censorship of motion pictures. But theaters continued to offer a percentage of their sales to charitable enterprises for the sake of good press, as we shall see in this week's Society Slants. But first, it's time to pass the hat. This time, I even have a brand new hat, a bright red top hat that I may or may not have purchased for the sole purpose of cosplaying the Jack of Diamonds, a character from Gate City Blues. You can imagine it sitting on my head, tilted at a jaunty angle, before I do that clever little trick where I roll it down my arm and hold it outstretched in my white-gloved hand, and you just can't help but toss a few dollars in as I give you a rakish grin. That's what I'll be imagining, at any rate. So, without further ado, you can find me on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Etsy, and Patreon as The Woodmother, all one word. Woodmother stickers are now for sale in my Etsy shop, and you should buy one because they're awesome. If you'd like to subscribe to me on Patreon, you'll get access to my Woodmother's Cottage Discord server, which, in addition to being a great community full of cool people, is where I write all of my research notes in a log and regularly chat about my story progress. If you'd like to get me one of the books from my wishlist, I've linked it down below in the description. The next one on my list is still Ragged But Right, Black Traveling Shows, Coon Songs, and The Dark Pathway to Blues and Jazz by Lynn Abbott and Doug Seroff. I also want to thank some more of my Patreon patrons. Irene, Joanne, Becca, Christopher, and Sarah. Thank you for all your support. Now, the moment you've all been waiting for, Society Slants. This week's slants are from December 9th, 1931. Social headliner this Friday. Guess I owe Shepard Turner about five simoleons for a bit of most unusual behavior on his part. Or did old Shep just want to get his name in the paper again? It might have been that laughing soup, giggle gas, 
carbonated hash, other intoxicating similes. But he insists upon... Oh, well, why bring that up? At any rate, if I allowed myself to believe the things Shep has prompted Messrs. Higginbotham, Cornell, Montgomery, and the fair ladies to say, I'd be wearing an automobile top for a hat. Easy, Shep. Easy, old pal. I'm broke. Okay, so what I'm gathering from this first paragraph is that he lost a bet to Shepard Turner, and now he has to talk about Shep in his column. But the nature of the bet, I cannot deduce. Also, the phrase, I'd be wearing an automobile top for a hat, is like absolutely buckwild. Seriously now, folk, there was a gay time at the casino again Saturday night. So much in demand were those blatant Bama State Collegians that the cream of Atlanta's younger set was paying 40 cents straight just to get a whiff of those highly syncopated flare-ups. The gay fellers of the house sponsored the affair, and how? Already I can hear you asking an imaginary maniac, who the Hades are the gay fellers of the house, and what darn house? I won't tell you what house, but I'll give you a tip. It was not the house of David. What does that even mean, Lucius? Then who were the fellers? Don't mind answering that one. They were Messrs. Thomas Dawson, Hortinius Cheneau, Melvin Houston, N. A. Harrison, James Melver, Curtis Cage, Leland Foster, Armand Robinson, Daniel David, Wilmer Jennings, F. C. Parker, and Lycurgus. Where in hell did he get a name like that? Curry. I appreciate that Lucius Jones also acknowledges how bizarre some of these names are. The boys gave us two nice affairs on successive Saturdays, and although we do not know their before and after status as relates to ye old simoleon, we must congratulate them on the color, the mirthful balance, and the torrid note manufactured. Man, sometimes I have no idea what he's talking about. Among the fragrant and affable young ladies were such charming members of the so-called weaker sex as Mrs. Oscar Hall, Marjorie Rowland, Mrs. John McFarlane, Christine Barnett McFarlane, Nettie Bennett, Anne L. Savage, Anne Rutledge, Carmel Butler, Ruth Simpkins, Hattie and Edith Wimbish. He's mentioned Hattie and Edith Wimbish together several times. Makes me wonder if they're twins because it's always the both of them. Willie Kate and Edna Taylor, Angeline Tatum, Louise Fry, Juanita Chapman, Minnie Calloway, Julia Minifield, Anne Wilkinson, Annie Kirby, Geraldine Mitchell, she's the one who threw the gay little breakfast affair on Thanksgiving a few weeks back, Thelma Handley, Martha Lee Eccles, Hattie Thomas, Ruth Warner, Jimmy Lou Wilkins, Frances Wilson, Margaret Wilson, Alice Pearson, Josephine Driscoll, May Hinton, Margaret Williams, Sadie Brown, Helen Williams, Willett Poole, Lillian Solomon, Juliet Jackson, Rose Elligan, Emma Jones, Sadie Harper Melton, Margaret Wesley, Daisy Bell Hunter, Serethia and Eula Brown, Catherine Singleton, Mildred Pruitt, Marguerite Williams, Manola Criggs, and Alice Thomas, and Thelma Dugas, and scores of others. All these and more will dance at the Maniac's headliner Friday night at sunset. The Miserables included Jerome Chapman, Herbert Rowland. Hold on, I just want to acknowledge 
Um, <laughs> Lucius just gives these like very gendered lists of guests at parties, right? But he's always like, oh, the throng, fragrant and affable young ladies. And then a paragraph later, it's like, the shitty, gross young men, the miserables. <laughs> Jerome Chapman, Herbert Rowland, Shepard Turner, who is getting lots of publicity this issue. That's Lucius's words, not mine. William Winston, Julius Minifield, Mr. Lovejoy of Joy Man fame, whose name rings true, whatever that means, Buford Bray, N.E. Smith, Marcus Covington, Thurkeeld Freeman, interesting name, Charles Jordan, Thomas Borders, James Himbry, Joel Washburn, Oliver Holmes, Eric Roberts, Eugene White, Pap Ward, Gary Kendrick, the broad player, Paul Randall, Charles M. Lee, Jesse Arnett, Edgar Kinney, Robert McFarlane, Vernon Smith, Beau and Collier Kazan, Charles Herndon Faison, Fred Abels, the Beau Ideal of Atlanta, Willie Wynn, Willie Pullen, A.F.B. Horry Jr., <laughs> Augustus Jackson, John Jackson, Louis McIver, Harrison McIver, William Puckett, James Pinckney, Robert Stout, Leroy McNeil, Ralph Long, John B. Hill, Skinny Greenwood, hey, there's my boy Skinny Greenwood once again, Nathaniel Ricks, Glanville Lockett, damn, these names are good, Dratton Roberts, Frank Nelson, and ever so many more. This stuff is extemporaneous, and sometimes the old knob refuses to generate. <laughs> they make pills for that, Lucius. <laughs> But those will give you an idea of who was there anyway. You can bet your sweet carcass that the same faces and hundreds of others will be right back at the Friday Night Ringer. The Royal Theater is gradually forging to the front. We predicted it. I just want to take a second to inform you guys that the Royal Theater was a theater that was inside the Oddfellows building on Auburn Avenue. I think I might have talked about that before in this podcast um i think i made a tiktok about it too the pictures are attractions that are really hits having missed several previous chances to see a free soul starring norma shearer clark gable and lionel barrymore we made the trek to the royal last monday so compelling was the story that we saw it through twice and then came back on tuesday and witnessed it two other times any theater-goer who really appreciates good acting could not see such dramatization as that put up by Lionel Barrymore, Norma Shearer, and Clark Gable without marveling. Lionel Barrymore was never better in his career as a player. Norma was so real that manifold tears drained down countless cheeks in audience. Clark Gable continued his meteoric rise to widespread screen popularity. The sound effects of the royal are superb. It is not surpassed by any other picture house in the city in this particular. Incidentally, while scores of theatergoers were seated in the Royal, thrilled by the superior acting of Lionel Barrymore, similar numbers were encouched. I'm not sure if that's a real word, Lucius. Similar numbers were encouched within C. Tom Bailey's 81. There's the 81 theater again on Decatur Street, witnessing the same star soar to supreme heights in guilty hands. Today and tomorrow, the royal attractions, according to general manager Percy L. Taylor, 
will be common law, which is everything advanced dope has cracked up to be. Constance Bennett weaves all her passions, sorrows, joy, and triumphs into those attending. Monday and Tuesday of next week, the Auburn Avenue House will feature that four-star gridiron sensation, The Spirit of Notre Dame. A percentage of all next week's receipts will be given to the Morehouse Endowment Drive by the management. This being the case, all Atlantans who really have the time and interest should come to enjoy the picture and help the Morehouse Endowment Fund. That's a way to kill two birds with one stone. Thus ends this week's Society Slants. I hope you notice how it tied back into the history of the theaters in Atlanta. And thus ends this episode. Thank you to Soraya Peregrine for writing and performing the theme song. Don't forget to follow me on all my social media, subscribe to my Patreon, and, I haven't mentioned this before, but please leave a positive review of the show on the podcatcher of your choice. That will really help me out. Alright, farewell everybody, and as always, keep eyes and ears peeled for further developments.